My name is Bob and I am alcoholic. Through the grace of a God I was afraid to believe in, that I found out is crazy about me and has no taste. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, as they're outlined in this book, good sponsorship, a lot of commitments in Alcoholics Anonymous, a lot of 12-step work and bushels of newcomers. I haven't had a drink or any mind, mood, or emotion-altering substances since Halloween 1978. And for that... For that freedom, I owe you my life. And that is a freedom beyond anything I could have imagined as a newcomer or in the years I was in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I could imagine life without alcohol, I suppose, if you properly medicated me. But I couldn't imagine the kind of freedom from everything that I have a free spirit today. It was, in, it was inconceivable to me. Uh, I want to thank uh, Don and the members of the committee for having me here. It's, it's a privilege to show up in, in Alcoholics Anonymous and be, participate in any degree, whether it's make coffee, help with the chairs, or, or run your mouth. I think there's actually, there's actually uh, more juice in the other stuff than there is up here, really. This, I, I've always suspected that this feeds something in me that should be starved. You, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right? I, I, it's a dangerous proposition, really. Uh, but I stay in the trenches and I do a lot of things to balance this out. My real heart and soul in Alcoholics Anonymous is 12-step work and sponsoring guys and going to hospitals and institutions and that kind of thing. I'm here to talk to two people, basically. And you're here. You're always here. The first person I'm here to talk to is the man or woman that for some time now, and you don't understand why, you have an inability to find permanent sobriety. And you don't know why. You don't know why you sit in rooms full of people that seem to so easily put the plug in the jug and they don't have to take anything and they're just okay and then there's you. Uh, I'm here to talk to you because I was that person for seven years. As a matter of fact, the worst, most painful years of my life were after I went to my first treatment center and was exposed to AA for the first time. Those were the most horrific years of my life. Uh, and I'm here to talk to you because there's a way out of that trap. Um, the second person I'm here to talk to is the man or woman that's leaving AA and you don't even know you're leaving and you're doing it one judgment at a time, one compromised action at a time. If you're sober 10 years and you look back seven of those years, you were probably doing twice as much recovery seven years ago as you are today. And you don't even know that you're compromising your involvement in your own recovery incrementally bit by bit by bit by bit. And I'm here to talk to you because you're also me. One of the hardest things I've had to do in alcoholics in my own recovery is I've had to survive myself. And my natural inclination to separate me and distance me from the thing that will save my life. The Hi, uh, I'll be going home. I'm going to go into Portland with some friends of mine tonight. And I'll be flying back into Las Vegas uh, 
on Tuesday. And I'll be having a memorial service at my house for a guy I've first sponsored in 1979 who committed suicide this past week because he could not completely give himself to this simple program. A couple days before he killed himself, I got a call from a, a guy that I've known for years, and he told me about another guy that I knew who was seven. These guys committed suicide sober. And this other guy was seven in California, was seven and a half years a few days ago, poured five gallons of gasoline over himself and burned himself to death because he couldn't completely accept this way of life. His sponsor, I'm talking to his sponsor on the phone, who's a dear friend of mine, and I said, what happened? And he said, well, we could never get him to buy, we could never get him to get himself off of himself. And he, from the, when he was about six months sober, he, he never did, the, he couldn't buy the whole package, and he got depressed, and he got on medication, and then about a year ago it stopped working. And the doctors were frantically trying to juggle, giving changes, medication. And, and uh, a few days ago, he poured the gasoline over himself and torched himself. And I, when he's telling me that, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wow. If, if I know what it's like to want to kill yourself, I've been there. And if I were to make a list of 100 ways I'm going to off myself, I don't think that's going to be on the list. I mean, I get my car up. They say my car will go 200 miles an hour. I get it up to 200 miles an hour and go into a bridge abutment. I might do like the guy that we're having the memorial service, go to some doctor and get a whole big thing of drugs and take the whole thing at once. Or, but I can't imagine torturing myself. And yet, I believe that the desperation and hopelessness that drove him to do that was the same desperation and hopelessness that drove me to buy the whole package in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it's the exact same thing. And yet, why did I go left and he went right? I don't know. Maybe is it, am I lucky? I don't know. I know in 1978, in my last detox, in a moment of extreme weakness, I did something I'd never, I couldn't imagine doing. A counselor in there and asked, had asked me if I'd ever... What, she, said, she said, you've relapsed for seven years now. What's different this time? Because, you know, I'm one of those kind of wannabes, right? I'm the guy who, you know, talks about in the book, work better, feel better, having a better time. I'm that guy that tries to put up the facade like I'm doing good. So when she says, how you doing, Bob? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm grateful for everything. This is wonderful. And inside me, I'm dying. I'm dying. But I don't want you to see me with, I don't want to get caught with my spiritual pants down. So I, you know, I got to look, look good. And uh, she said, so what's different? I said, oh, I just took the third step. And she says, she brightened up. She says, really? I said, yeah. She says, so you said that prayer on page 63. I almost said, yeah, yeah, that's what I did. But I was afraid she'd quiz me on the prayer and then I'd be caught, right? So I said, no, no, I just did it my way. And her whole face just sunk. Just She looked at... You know how those old-timers will look at you when you're new sometimes like you, you like maybe you spilled something on yourself or something. You don't know why, why, why they're looking at you that way. And I just shuffled off to my room and uh, a couple days later, 
They're getting ready to discharge me from that treatment center, and I am terrified. And I'm terrified because I know a truth about me I don't want to know. I know I'm going to drink again. I don't want to drink again. But I know I, I've been... I've been a relapser for seven years. I've been beaten in the head with the reality of my failure to stay away from it. I can't tell you how many times I swore to myself and meant it that I'll never touch that stuff again. And seven or eight months or seven or eight weeks later, I'm either seeing some doctor trying to get some pills or I'm drinking bottles of NyQuil or I'm just going right out full bore drinking because I have an itch I have to scratch. And so I'm in this hospital and I'm scared to death because I know, and I, and this time, and, and on my last run, I tried to take my own life and I think this, this time I'm gonna do it. And I don't wanna die and I don't wanna drink no more. And I don't wanna drink no more, not because I don't wanna party, but I, I've finally got it. I finally got it that the party's over. Right? I can drink myself to death, but what I knew was a reality to me on my, my second to last run is that I will never, ever get back to the effect I had when I was 20 years old again. I'll never get that. And I don't want to go down this road no more. I'm, I'm worn out. I'm tired. There's, not much, there's nothing left of me of any value. I don't have any get up and go. There's no more positive thinking. There's no more I'm going to turn it around this time. I'm scared and I'm vacant, and I'm desolate, and I don't know what else to do. And in a hospital room, I, rem- I sat there, and I had a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that they gave me, and I uh, opened it to page 63, because Judy had mentioned page 63. And there's a prayer in the middle of page 63 that I don't understand it. It's written in some archaic language with thee and thou. I mean, who the hell are they anyway? I mean, you know, I don't even know what they're talking about. But in the middle of the prayer, there's a line that says, relieve me of the bondage of self. And I read that and I threw that book across the room and I started sobbing because I knew that the reason I was going to probably take my own life and the reason I was going to drink again is because of me and I can't get away from me. Everywhere I go, there I am. I've been, I'd, by this time, I'd been to church, I'd been saved, and, I, and, I, and it wears off and I'm back to being me again. I've been to all kinds of amazing psychiatrists, some of the greatest on the planet. I'd try, and I, I, I even had, I had these epiphany experiences one time. I went to a, a weekend seminar where we, they wouldn't even let you sleep. You've got to emote and get down to your, your inner children's stuff, you know, and all that stuff. You know, and about, I'll tell you, about 48 hours into not sleeping and talking about your feelings, all kinds of stuff comes up. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It, that weekend changed my life for two weeks, right? For two weeks. And then I'm back to being me again. And that's not good if you're like me. Because back to being me again is the guy that's sober doesn't fit anywhere really. Back to being me again is the guy who sober suffers from low-level depressions and, and feelings of anxious apartness and an, and an inability to feel like other people look, an inability to connect with them and be a part of them the way they seem to be a part of each other. And the loneliness and the low-level depression and the worry 
just eats my lunch. Until something always happens to me. And I don't mean it to happen. I don't want it to happen. I try everything I can not to make it happen, but I always get to that point where I feel if I don't have some kind of relief, I'm going to lose my mind. And you know the weird thing about that is by the time I get to that point and I drink again, it's usually my life is better than it's ever been. That's the crazy thing about it. That's the thing that doesn't make sense to me. Because now I'm sober eight, ten months. I got a motorcycle. I got a pretty girlfriend. I got a good job. I got some self-respect. Some people are starting to talk to me again that wouldn't have anything to do with me. On the outside looking in, man, Bob's turned the corner. But on the inside of me where I really live, it's no good. And, and alcoholics of my type, we sometimes we learn a very painful, tedious lesson that no matter how good we get it out here, if it ain't no good in here, it ain't no good. Right? That's why people in $5 million homes put pistols to their head without ever picking up a drink. So I get sober and I'm restless, I'm irritable, I'm discontent and... And I'm scared and I relapse again and I'm in this hospital room and I open to that page 63 and I read that prayer and I read, relieve me of the bondage of self. I throw that book across the room. I start sobbing and I begged a God I don't even believe in for help. And I would like to tell you that I had some sort of epiphany experience. I don't know what I had. I, but somewhere after about a minute, I stopped sob. I stopped crying. And somewhere after a minute and a half or two minutes, I, I started to have a sense that made no sense. I'm facing two years in prison. I'm homeless. There's not a person on the face of the earth that will have anything to do with me. And yet, I started to have this feeling like it was going to be okay. If I could get involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and really get right in the middle of AA... And throw a guy had said to me something right after that 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 I clicked with it. He said, "He's told I was telling him about how I'm going to have to go to prison for two years and how I'm I can't get a job and how and I have these emotional problems and these mental problems." I thought I was insane because I got a head that when I sober up just won't leave me alone. I mean, and it won't leave you alone either. It just starts in on you too. I mean, it just it just doesn't leave anybody alone. Right? It's bad. It's, it's like to live with my mind in untreated alcoholism sober is like being shackled to, be, to a hyperactive ADD kid that won't shut up. It's, just, just, it's, it's awful. And, it's, and it, it, I, don't, I don't chatter in my head to myself about positive stuff. It's never like that. It's, it's, it's always doomsday, the end of the world, they don't like you, punch your boss. I mean, it's always crazy... <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, just nut stuff. You got cancer, you're dying. I mean, it's just, you know, always crazy stuff. So, I, I started throwing myself at Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I went to 15 meetings a week, sometimes more. I said yes to everything they told me, hesitantly sometimes. I was brand new, and they wanted me to go on 12-step calls. They wanted me to go back into the hospitals and institutions. They wanted me to sign up for this new meeting in the prison. I'm not even sober six months. 
And they're, they're wanting me to do all this stuff. And I'm telling this guy, I said, you know, yeah, you know, I know what she, I, I used to, I remember this is being suspect, thinking that this is some kind of multi-level pyramid deal, you know, you want, <laughs> want to send, you want to make me one of your minions, you know, to go out and recruit me. Or but I tell this guy, you know, I, I understand what, that you want me to do this, help people and everything, but I'm not, I don't really, honestly, honestly, I really don't feel like I'm ready yet. And he says to me, he starts laughing, he says, listen, kid, if you wait till you feel like you're ready to help somebody before you help somebody, you'll have already died of alcoholism. And both those guys that died this week, they couldn't do that. They could not get themselves off of themselves and their own problems. I'll tell you something I believe. From my own experience, I sponsor a lot of guys, and this is a consistent experience in AA. I think for some reason, on some weird level, alcoholics are compelled to serve something. And all most of my life, I served myself, my gratification, my security, my finances, my relationships, what you thought of me, 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 me. And Alcoholics Anonymous asked me to do something that's very hard. When I am the most important thing to me in the universe is to set me aside and to serve an ethic and a primary purpose and ultimately a power other than myself. And that's not easy when all you've done is serve yourself all your life. It's not easy when all you've concerned yourself with all your life is you. And it's that, when, it, when that's your natural inclination... This is hard stuff. And yet, it is only in those actions that the freedom comes. Why did I drink again? Why Why does a guy like me who, who's on paper and all i got to do is get a couple more good UAs and I won't have to go to prison for two years and I, and I screw it up? Why do I do that? And what happens to me right before I drink? I'll tell you, every time, every time I went back out again, 30 minutes prior to going out, I'm heading towards it with an anticipation of freedom. I'm heading towards it with a feeling like I just, I just got to bust out. Because I'm so locked up in me and my emotions and my stuff and it's eaten my lunch. It, no wonder my spirit is depressed. I got so much of me on me that I'm suffocating here inside of me. And I start, in, I start yearning for freedom. And see, at one time, I could be like that, and five shots of tequila, and man, I could come out and play. Five shots of tequila, and I was free. Bob's on the loose now. You know what I'm saying? Five shots of tequila. I could dance. I could play with the bands. I could do, man, I was the guy. And that was all the freedom I'd ever known, really. And alcohol and drugs and combinations, alcohol and drugs, it turned on me the last couple of years of my, my drinking. I couldn't get free of me. I, I, I would drink and I would feel sorry for myself and be full of self-pity and go and cry in jags. And my idea of a good time the last two years was to hole up somewhere with a couple half gallons of vodka and seek oblivion. That's not a party. That's pathetic. I didn't bathe no more. 
I didn't care what I looked like. I just wanted to just wipe it out. Wipe it out. And this is, it was pathetic. I drank pretty much alone. Uh, when I could, sometimes I'd have to drink with people. But it didn't, I wasn't very social at the end. And yet at one time in my drinking in the early days, I was very social. I used to run with a gang. And God, I remember those feelings of intimacy where I'd, I'd be with my guys and we'd be pulling a burglary or we'd be going out to score something or something, man, and I'd be, we'd be half lit up and I'd be so connected to those guys. I mean, connect, this is my guys. This is, I mean, I remember that feeling. I remember the ability to talk to girls, the ability to, oh, that's just all of that. But at the end, it's not like that. And I don't know how to change it. And I've tried, I can't roll it back. I, I thought, I thought maybe, I, my big hope in therapy was that I would find, you know, I, I came from, I had a good childhood. And it's funny, the longer I'm sober, the better my childhood seems to have been. I mean, uh, that's a funny thing. I, one time I tried to blame my parents for everything, but my parents loved me. They never abused me. They never hurt me. They, were, they were, went out, they sacrificed, went out of their way. For years, they spent fortune trying to send me to psychiatrists and treatment centers. They, my mother had to get a second job to try to deal with my alcoholism. Um, you know, they loved me. But I suspected that even though it appeared like I had a good childhood, somebody must have damaged me, you know? Because I, I felt damaged, you know? I bet, I bet you I was Miss Potty Trained or something, you know? I, I knew it. I could feel it. I felt damaged. Never could uncover what it was. I, I even had it went frustrated after spending it. Uh, went through rational motive therapy and gestalt therapy and this new thing that was out at the time, transactional analysis and, and uh, all that stuff. I went through all of it. Then I went to a, a hypnotherapist. I, you know what I figured? I figured, well, that, that, whatever that thing was that happened to me, I must have blocked it out. And I was regressed back into my childhood with hypnotherapy because I'm obsessed with controlling and enjoying my drinking. I think if I can fix whatever that is, I'll be able to roll her back and drink like I drank when I was 18, 20 years old again. Because that's all I really want. I just want to get, I want to roll her back to the good old days, that's all. And I went back through that hip, regressive hypnotherapy. I never did find out what it was. Because I, nobody did this to me. I was born with a malady, an illness, of my being. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you something I believe. It'll sound crazy to some of you, especially if you're new. This will really sound crazy to the Alanons. I think one of God's greatest blessings is alcoholism. And what is a blessing except something that'll push you, shove you, or drag you screaming into being more than what you are? And alcoholism is, in a sense, is the greatest blessing because without it, I would not have the way of life I have today. I, I would not have, I would not have people in my life that I care about that when they die and don't get this thing, it hurts me. I'm glad that it hurts me, because you know when I see the see somebody die of alcoholism, what I see is I. That's me. That's me. I don't delude myself that I'm more smarter than them or. 
Nah. It's me. Absolutely. It's me. And if I walk down the same road that they walk down, and only through God's grace I don't, but if I walk through this down the road, same road they walk down, I'm, I'm going to experience exactly what they experienced and have the exact same thing happen to me. I'm no different. And that, that was my illusion for years, that I was different. I'm special. Even, even after several treatment centers, I, I remember this so clearly. I, you know, being, I finally intellectually bludgeoned into an acceptance that I'm, okay, I'm alcoholic. All right. But I'm a special kind of alcoholic. I, I knew it. I could feel, I knew I was, because I, I, I look at the people in AA. I ain't like them. My case is special. Uh, and it's not. And it's not. I am one of the herd, and it's great. I am grateful to be one of the herd today. One of the greatest descriptions of Alcoholics Anonymous was coined by a non-alcoholic doctor who in 1946 was asked by the AMA to, to look at us. Just, and he just looked at our, he looked skimmed through the big book and went to a few meetings, and then he made an address on the radio for the AMA trying to say what he thought AA was. And there's a portion of, of this guy's deal that's reprinted in the back of the big book in a little obscure section nobody ever reads called The Medical View of Alcoholism. And I'll tell you, I think it's the best description of us ever coined anywhere. And Dr. Bill Baer said, he said to us, he said, well, he said this AA, he says, they're not a temperance movement. And that's true, we're not. We're not fighting alcohol. We know alcohol is... We, we know alcohol wasn't the problem. If alcohol was the problem, everybody that has a beer would beat their wife or husband. I mean, it's not the problem. What we have is alcoholism. Alcohol isn't the problem. What alcohol is really for the alcoholic, it's an answer that's turned on us that we can't let go of. Alcohol is not the problem. He goes on to say they're not crusaders, and for the most part that's true, even though there's a phase that some of us go through. But I'll tell you, you're going to come, you don't stay in that phase, because if you stay in that phase too long, you don't stay sober, right? One of the things about Alcoholics Anonymous is self-cleaning. I mean, it's just, my sponsor has a great line. He says, he says, it's periodically John Barleycorn comes through here with a sack and just fills it up with people that are off the beam. And it's true. It's self-cleaning. He says we're not crusaders. He says what we are is that we're people who know, I mean know, that we must never drink. And that knowledge, for some of us, we all, some alcoholics pay with their life and never learn that lesson. The countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The switching from alcohol to cocaine to heroin to anything desperate attempt. Just like Dr. Bob, the high-powered sedatives every day of his life for 17 years, trying to keep the obsession with alcohol at bay, and all it did was turn him into a periodic. We, we, spent, we almost spent our lives fighting that knowledge that I can't drink. I can't drink. I burn my life to the ground every single time. I burn my life to the ground. And then here's where, here's where Bear, Bear just slams me. And I, boy, did I get this. He says, and boy, what an insightful thing into AA he had. He says that 
they throw themselves into helping others with similar problems. And in that atmosphere, the alcoholic often overcomes his excessive over-concentration upon himself. See, that's the problem. I stop drinking and I just get me and my emotions on me like that creature and alien that attaches itself to your face. How you doing, Bob? Well, I'm hanging in there. That's why when, when, you're, when you're new with untreated alcoholism, if anybody even asks you how you're doing, the first thing you have to do is sigh. You go, Because <sighs> life is too big. It's too, I have this, I mean, this excessive over-concentration on myself, and it's, it's smothering me here. And the anxiety of it and the depressed spirit. So I drink. 1970, 1978, I went on my last run I, uh, that ended me up in that hospital, that ended me up with this copy of this book that ended me up saying that, asking God to relieve me of the bondage of self. And on that last run, I tried to take my own life. And I, I was, I'd been in a treatment center, and I was in there in lieu of two years in prison. A kind judge had sentenced me to two years on a felony. Told me if I could stay in this place for a year, get good UAs, good PO report, make the restitution, that they would reduce it down to a misdemeanor, and I would do the six months time served, and I'd be even. And I couldn't stay sober. I tried. I'm telling you. Day in and day out and week in and week out. And now I can't take the medications anymore because I've tried all the medications from the doctor and I always eventually go back to drinking. Eventually. I remember one time in, in a previous, the time before, I think it was a time before that I had a period of abstinence. And I was in another institution and the, one of the counselors there, you know, said, you know, what said to me one day, Bob, what, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Because I'm not, I am not happy, joyous, and free. Abstinence feels like I'm doing time, right? And I'm, I'm ha I get this low-level depression. So he sends me to a, a psychiatrist, and I'm in this psychiatrist. And I remember walking into the office, thinking to myself, you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest with this guy. I know I've been to a lot of other psychiatrists, but this, maybe if I'm honest with this guy, he can help me. And I went and I started talking as honestly as I could about what was going on in my life. And my inability to fit and how the guys at work are always kidding around and giving me a hard time. And, and I, I, don't, I don't get it that I'm real self-obsessed and serious and I don't mix well with people. And I can't play with them the way they play with each other because i got too much of me on me. And I, I, I don't feel very good and I'm half-assed depressed all the time. And, and this psychiatrist looked at me and he says, but, and you're sober all you're sober these months. I said, yeah, I'm not drinking. I'm not even smoking pot anymore. I've, done, I've tried that. I'm not taking anything. And he said to me, he said, you know, nobody appreciates what you're doing. And I started to like this guy. I thought, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And he said, there's no reason for you to feel this way. And he reached over and he grabbed a prescription pad he says, we got something exactly for guys just like you. And he hasn't even written anything yet, and I'm starting to feel better. 
I'm just stuck. Matter of fact, just watching him reach for that prescription pad, I'm getting excited. This is this is a good doctor. This is a good doctor. Good doctor. I, if I could have ran around the desk and hugged him I, with, a, with a little panache, I think I'd have done it. And he gave me some medication, as, as I'd been given medication before on many occasions. And it gave me a little bit of relief. When is a little bit of relief ever enough for an alcoholic? That's the problem. And also, the, the real problem is that it, it tones down just enough of my hopelessness and my desperation to give me a false sense of okayness. Now I don't have to surrender completely to this simple program. I don't have to get some fanatic sponsor that's going to try to run my life. I don't have to write this inventory and spend the rest of my life paying people back and helping others. Now I'm good to go. But alcoholism doesn't give a crap about any of that. And it just it functions right below the surface in the core of who I am. And it just gnaws away at me. And eventually the relief I was getting from myself, from the medication, wasn't enough. And I started to fantasize about how boring this is and how, how the guys I work with are out there picking up girls at the bars and dancing and having fun, and then there's me. And I yearn for that. Carl Jung, the great psychiatrist Carl Jung, wrote a letter to Bill Wilson. If you ever, ever get a chance to read it, it is, it's a most remarkable letter. And, and Carl said something to Bill Wilson. This is not a direct quote, but he said that he suspected from his... He wouldn't tell Roland Hazard this, but he always suspected from his experience with alcoholics that the alcoholic's thirst for alcohol isn't really a thirst for alcohol. It's a low-level thirst of his being for unity, for connectedness, to be a part of, to fit... Or as, and then Carl says, or as expressed in medieval religious terms, a yearning and a thirst for a union with God. And that's really why, I, in the great glory days of my drinking, that's what I got. I could walk into a bar with so much of me on me and I'm in my head and leave me alone and I got resentments towards everybody and I'm uptight and I, I'm, I'm, I'm this scared little kid inside a gorilla outfit. And I'm lonely and I'm depressed and I'm frustrated and four or five drinks and I was free. About seven drinks and I realized I love everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I love you, man. I remember that feeling. I remember that feeling of being connected to, to everything and everybody, being a part of, like as if I, I remember at times after about half drunk where I think to myself, oh, this is what Buddha saw. You know, we could just see the whole picture. You know, you're just connected to the universe. Plugged in, man. I'm plugged in. And then I sober up and I'm back to being me again. And I never, ever liked that much. And that's my problem. So in 1978, I... Uh, I started, I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, and I mean, I really joined AA. I got a sponsor. I was going to 15 meetings a week. I did every service commitment that came down the pike. I, I even started praying. I don't even believe in God, and I'm praying. I'm living in this men's halfway house, 
kind of a down and out skid row kind of place. I'm in a room with bunk beds and a couple of guys, and I I can't pray in front of these guys. So I got to go in the bathroom, lock the door, throw the throw rug up under the crack in the door so nobody can peek under there and see me pray, get down on my knees, and I'm praying to something I don't even believe in. I felt like a hypocrite. I told this guy today, I said, you know, I, I, I feel like a hypocrite. He says, you've been a hypocrite all your life. What the hell's the difference? <laughs> he says, you've always been the guy who you'll say you're going to do something and you don't feel like it. You do whatever you want to do. You've always been a hypocrite. Just do it. And I didn't understand that what, what they were doing is they were asking me to participate in what a scientist would call a working hypothesis. I don't believe in God. But I change my attitude, or as Don was talking about in avionics, your angle of approach, and act as if the runway is really there even though there's fog and you can't see it. And I'm changing my angle of approach, and I'm starting to act like there is a God that's got my back. And what happened is I started to realize there was. And isn't it funny, as long as I believed there wasn't and took that stance towards life, I got to be right about that consistently. And from the moment I started to make the approach, things started to change. I started uh, having an endless series of coincidences happen in my life. I mean, good stuff. Good stuff. I got the perfect job. The, I, was, I, I, I had to get out of that halfway house because my one roommate stealing heroin and the other one smoking pot. I am on thin ice here. And a job just came to me. I didn't look for it. It just came to me. Working in a treatment center for teenagers, they gave me room and board and enough money, not to play big shot, but enough money to start chipping away at some amends and put a dollar in the basket at a meeting and get to meetings every day. Perfect job for me. Not the one I wanted. God had that. But it was the perfect job for me. Perfect. Perfect job. I started, I, I, I go through these bad mood swings. Bad, bad mood swings. Early sobriety. I mean, I can just be sitting, just feeling grateful to be alive, and then ten minutes later I'm in a depression, and nobody's even done nothing to me. You know, I just do that. I just do that. And I, uh, my phone would ring, and there'd be some guy in AA wanting to talk to me. Or I'd go to some meeting. This I remember this like, I, I'm, I went to a lunch, a noon meeting one time off work. And I asked my boss, I said, I've got to get out of here for an hour and a half. And I went to this noon meeting because I'm ready to quit my job. And I'm just so wound up, I feel like my head's going to explode. I'm about ready to kill somebody. And I'm at that meeting, and some stranger, I don't even know, starts talking about his job and about what he had to do. And I'm sitting there and I'm realizing I don't have to quit my job. I have to make amends to these people at work. And that would have never occurred to me in and of myself. And I started realizing that God was working through the fabric of the universe to bring to me the things that I would need to sustain me. As long as I could keep my head not completely out, but enough out of my butt that I could kind of get a glimpse of a little bit going on. And I uh, started to realize that there was something working in my life. There's an old old story. I, I was just over in London. I'm going again next month. And 
this, there's still sections of London where the streets are lit by gas lamps, gas streetlights. And now they all have electric starters and computers and stuff that turn them on at twilight. But years ago, what they had is they had a guy that his job was to go up and down the streets of London with a long pole with a flame on the end, and he had a key, and he would turn the gas on, and then he would reach up and he'd, he'd light that lamp. And he was called a lamplighter, and you could climb up to the top of the highest building at London at twilight and look out over the city, and you could not see where the lamplighter was, but you could always see where he'd been. And I could sit in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous at two and a half years sober, and I can't really see where God is. I might try to tell you I can because I want, I want your approval, but I really can't. But man, could I see where he'd been in my life. And, and, and more distinctly, in the lives of the guys I saw get sober after me. You know, this is the greatest show on earth. We get to see something here, especially... If you're one of the, if you're like me and you're in the trenches, you get to see something that is astounding. You'll get to see men and women who have lost their kids and never will be able to get them back. And then maybe at two years, two and a half years sober, they're at a meeting and they got their kids. You'll see homeless guy. You'll see that guy that lived under the bridge that used to have the will work for food sign. Three or four years later, he's buying his first house. You'll see that guy that was so depressed that the lights were on in nobody's home that would never be, never feel good about himself sober. And in a couple years, he's sponsoring a couple guys and he's picking on them like we picked on him. And he's laughing and carrying on and he's connected and he's a part of. That's the greatest show on earth. I'm telling you, we see things on a regular basis in Alcoholics Anonymous that Hollywood would want to make miniseries about and stuff. It, 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 this, this, it's funny, but you know, we, we're actually blasé about it. We're, it's just like, yeah, yeah. you know, somebody will come up to you at the coffee, you get a cup of coffee and say, oh, you remember so-and-so, the homeless guy who just bought his own house? Yeah, yeah, where's the sugar? I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> right, we get blasé about this stuff here. But it is our, it is our way of life. So I, uh, I spent the first four years close to over four years, close to four and a half years in my sobriety and a tremendous amount of service in AA. I still do a tremendous amount of service. But in those days, it was, there was a desperation about it. As if I could, I can't take the pills from the doctors. I can't drink. I can't smoke nothing. And I'm not doing very well sober. So it was as if I am trying to outrun my alcoholism. Chamberlain used to say something that was very profound. He used to say, for the real alcoholic, there always comes a time where you can no longer put anything between you and you. And at a little over four years sober, there wasn't enough toys, there wasn't enough sex, there wasn't enough service commitments, there wasn't enough meetings, there wasn't enough pats on the back for a good job done in AA, Bob. There wasn't enough of anything anymore to put between me and me. And it's like I can't dodge or divert myself any longer from this vacancy that is right in the core of who I am. And I'm, I'm, I can't shake the... the, the I, I'm, I'm trying to outrun these depressions and all this other stuff and I nothing I can do. 
And I went back and did something I, I didn't want to do. First of all, I had to admit something to myself I don't want to admit. I never really did this. I did, a four, I did two four steps. I answered all the questions in the 12 by 12, the 30-some questions. And I did the life story version of the fourth step with 40 pages of everything I'm ashamed of or felt guilty about. But I never got free. And I've spent my first four years trying to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, and I can't. It says in the section going into step four that, that we're blocked. We're blocked. I'm blocked from this God within me that I hear people talking about, this God that you're supposedly having some kind of conscious contact with through prayer and meditation that I'm just saying words at. There's no conscious contact. I'm blocked from God, and I'm blocked from you. I'm edging my way out of AA. I don't know that I'm edging my way out of AA, but I really understand what's wrong with a lot of you in depth. And because I'm a little antsy, I need to periodically tell you, which is makes sobriety a lonely business at times. <laughs> I can't shut off the judgment machine. I'm so judgmental. And then sometimes when I'm alone, I turn it on me. And I start beating myself up. See, the problem is when, you, when you've unleashed the dogs of judgment, they always come back and bite the master. It wouldn't be so bad if I could unleash them on you and they just bite you. But they always come, and I always start beating myself up and how lousy my job is and how lousy my relationships are. And I don't feel, oh, it just always turns on me. It always turns on me. And I'm in a lot of trouble because I'm trying to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And I have not dismantled the judgment machine within me that is the essence of my will. I mean, what is your will except the thing that this is this way, that's this way? It is my personal judgment and perception of the universe. It is my will. I, I, you know how I really got that one day, really brought it home, as I was with an attorney making up a trust. And uh, one of the weird things that happened to me in AA is that not in, I, didn't want it, I didn't plan for it to happen, but I got very successful materially. And I had to do this trust. And this, this attorney says to me something, a throwaway line. He says, you know what your last will is, don't you? I said, yeah, you're, what you want to give people. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, but it's really your last judgment. You're judging these people to be idiots. They get nothing. You're judging these people to get cool. They get something. It's your last judgment, really. So what, what is happening in my early sobriety is I'm every single day I get up, I say the third step prayer. I'm a trying to turn my will and my life over the care of God. I'm effectively trying to give him my life, but I'm retaining my judgment or my will about my life. And if you do that, the same thing will probably happen to you that happened to me. So here's what that's like. Okay, God, here's my life, but there's a list coming of how it better go. And you know what depression is? That's when God stops doing your will. I mean, really. And then the anxiety... And, and the separation that incurs from my judgments about you, I, I go to an, I, it got to a point where I went to an AA meeting and I don't want to listen to anybody in there except me because uh, that person's an idiot, she's an idiot, they're an idiot. They're, it, it, I'm like separating myself from everybody by my judgments. I'm blocked from God, I'm blocked from carrying out this decision in step three, and I'm blocked from you. And I'm lonely and I'm depressed. And I don't even fit in the organization that saved my life. 
So I went back through these steps. And in that fourth step, I started to dismantle the judgment machine that, that is my will. And I, I'll tell you, it's, there's a line in there. It's, it's a statement, but it could be a question. It says, we are prepared, in the resentment section, we are prepared to look at these things from an entirely different angle. If you can't stand being wrong about anything, you're going to have a hard time in sobriety. And I don't know what it is about my, the alcoholic ego that I'd rather die than be wrong. As a matter of fact, I, I can be plummeted into an overwhelming realization that I'm wrong, but somehow I'll be wiggling around trying to figure out how I'm not really wrong. I'm the guy that could stand before a judge and say, guilty, Your Honor, but with an explanation. Right? I had some really good teachers. There was a guy named Dale who died of cancer with a lot of years of sobriety. And Dale got in my face one day when I was new, and he's poking me like this. He says, listen, kid, I'm going to tell you something. That if you can buy it, it'll save you a lot of pain and a lot of grief. He said, kid, I want you to know something. If you're explaining something, if you're defending something, if you're rationalizing something or you're justifying something, kid, I want you to know you're wrong. Because you never have to explain, justify, rationalize, or defend what is right. And I, you know, they say the truth will set you free, but it'll ruin your day first, I'm telling you. <laughs> Twenty-seven years later, Dale's words ring in my head. I just, few, several weeks ago, I'm, I, kept, I caught myself explaining myself to somebody. And I went, oh, man. You never have to explain what's right. You never have to. And so I started to dismantle this judgment machine and I started to get free. And uh, if you're new here, I'll tell you, the, I, I, don't know that, I don't know what's more powerful, the, the fourth step or the twelfth step or the seventh. I don't, know, I don't know what step's the most powerful, but it seems like every time I really get one of them, I think, oh, that's the whole deal, right? And it's really, it's all of it. Um, I don't think I would have survived the first four years of my sobriety if it wouldn't have been for the 12-step work. You know, what Bill says something in his story that is very prophetic because it didn't really happen to him yet. But he says that unless the alcoholic will expand his spiritual life through self-sacrifice and constant work for, with others, he will never survive the certain, which means they're coming, trials and low spots ahead. Certain means you're doing really great. Hang on. There used to be a guy in Vegas, he used to go to me and he'd say, can I see the hands of the people that are having a really good day? And about half the room raised their hand. He said, okay, now can I see the hands of the people that aren't doing so well today? And about another half of the room. And he'd say, the guys that just raised their hand that aren't doing so well, look at the ones that raised their hand for doing well. They're going to be raising their hand where you raised your hand next week. Because we all get a turn in the barrel here. And uh, I, I couldn't have survived myself my first few years of sobriety if it wasn't for 12-step work. And I don't understand why I'm doing it because a lot of times I'd go on these 12-step calls or I'd go into the institutions and, or I'd be given, when I got my first $100 car, I'd be given some newcomer a ride to a meeting. I don't know why. It seems like an inconvenience to me. Being self-centered at the extreme, it's all, everything becomes about me, right? And then one night, I was about a year and a half sober, 
and I was sinking into a deep, deep depression. I used to get so depressed sometimes, I, I, they would have a physical effect on me. Like where I couldn't get off the sofa, like I'd feel like I weighed a thousand pounds. And I'm sinking into this abyss, and I don't know what's right. I don't even, there's, I don't know what started it. I've been to two meetings that day. I had talked to my sponsor that day, and I had prayed that day. And it's eaten me up alive. And I'm, I'm just stuck thinking of, I'm stuck, focused on my emotions, thinking about myself, thinking about my lack, my lack of a relationship, thinking about my job that's not going anywhere. And I don't know what, what it is about me that when I ponder my life, I've never done that and come away joyous. I, I've never done that. It's always, I, I, I don't know, I guess I, I can't ponder it. It's, I ponder in a bleak manner. It's just always bleak. And, it's, and I'm sinking into this abyss of, of, of obsessive over-self-involvement. And I don't know what to do. And there's, I look at the clock and it's going on 10 o'clock at night. And there's a, a meeting up on the strip at a chapel called Duffy's. It was the Between the Shows group. It started at 10.15. And I, I said a little prayer and somehow I, I, I muscled my way off that sofa. It was really hard. And I'm on my way to that meeting. I shuffled out to my car like a mope and I... I, I just feel, I even looked, I must have looked like I was heavily burdened, you know, I'm just, it was, it was horrible. And I get in my car and I drive up and I park, there's a parking space right in front of the door to the chapel and I go in, I'm sitting in the back of the room, but I can't hear anything. Because what's going on in the meeting is like music in a doctor's office, you know, because the big show's on the inside, right? I'm, I am so focused on me and my feelings and my thoughts that this is everything in reality is distant. And isn't it funny that, that, that the sickness of alcoholism is a reversal of perspective? When you're really healthy, your head is like music in a doctor's office you're not paying any attention to, and your real presence is right here. But when you reverse, that's when we get sick. And I'm, 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 I can't hear nothing. It's really bad. I, I, I don't know what it is about me when I'm depressed. I, I just feel compelled to draw sweeping conclusions about my life. And they're always depressing conclusions, you know. And, and, and do you ever notice, if, you're ever, if you've ever been prone to depression, it like, it's like it changes your perception of life. And it, it's, it's almost like you took something. And I, I, it's, it looks like you're always going to be that way and you always were. I remember one time I was in one of those funks, I called my sponsor up and I, I said, Dick, I said, I just... I just feel awful. And he says, well, how long have you felt like that? And I said, oh, I've always felt like this. He said to me, he says, you were laughing and carrying on with the guys Friday night at the group. Well, I must have been in denial or something. That's funny now, but I'm telling you, when you're in the middle of that, that seems real. It seems like it's endless. It goes on for, it seems like you're stuck walking across Nebraska or something. Like it's just... So I'm in this meeting. I can't hear nothing. I, I, the, the, matter of fact, the meeting is making me uncomfortable because everybody in the meeting is joyously happy and grateful for everything. You know, one of those kind of meetings. But there's a guy in the back of the room sitting right across from me that's coming off a drunk, and he's in bad shape. And he's, he's grabbing himself. 
and shaking like he wants to jump out of his skin. He's rocking back and forth like, like he's just really having a bad time. And he can't sit still, and he gets up, and he's pacing like a caged animal behind where I'm sitting back and forth. And, and then the, he can't do that very long. There's a bathroom right there, and you can hear him go in there, and he's in there dry heaving. And I'm sitting here. I've got problems I'm trying to figure out, and I, the guy's annoying the crap out of me. I'm telling you. <laughs> the meeting's over. I've heard nothing. I'm, pro- I'm actually worse. I, I stay after to help Charlie with the chairs and the trash and everything and set up everything for the chapel. And Charlie's kind of in a hurry because he has to go to work. He works at the graveyard shift up on the strip. And Charlie and I are the last two guys to leave the chapel. And we're standing on the front porch and Charlie's locking up. And I look over and the guy that's coming off the drunk is laying on the ground in a fetal position in front of my car. Now I'm going to have to step over him to go home and think at depth. But Charlie's there, and Charlie said, you know, you're going to help this guy. And I'm looking at this guy, and I'm looking at Charlie, and I'm thinking, oh, crap. And I go over to this guy, and he's peed his pants. And, oh, man, he doesn't have any medical insurance. They haven't opened West Care yet, and starting point had closed. There was a period in time in Vegas that if you needed detoxed and you didn't have money or insurance, you were in trouble. Sometimes we'd take guys like that, we'd take them into our homes, and we'd give them vodka and orange juice a shot every hour and wean them off. But I couldn't do that. It's, it's midnight. There was one other thing left to do, and I hated it. I, I did it before. It was, there was a county hospital that would take a certain number of indigent patients because they got government money and stuff, you know. But it was bad. I've been down there before on 12-step calls. They, teach you like, they treat you like a red-headed stepchild. They have this attitude towards alcoholics. Like they would rather treat anybody else that comes in there first because rather than these self-inflicted guys that are probably going to be back next month anyway. And that's their attitude. I've been down there before. Sometimes they'd make you sit, sit in that waiting room five, six hours. So I'm driving. I get this guy, this mope in my car, and I'm driving down to the county hospital, and I'm pissed. I don't want to do this. I, I got to, I got to work in the morning. I'm going to be tired. I'm probably not going to have a bad attitude, probably lose my job, but it's a lousy job anyway, you know. And doesn't anybody ever step up to the plate in AA except me? The, the key word is me. And we get down there and I, we sign in and I'm sitting there and I'm, give, I'm giving cigarettes. Some of you are not going to believe this. There was a time where you could smoke cigarettes in hospital waiting rooms. I know that sounds hard to believe, but that really was. It's right after the 8-track error. I mean, uh, <laughs> and I'm giving him cigarettes, and I'm going over to the, the, the vending. There's a bank of vending machines, and one of them had these little cans of juice, and I'm getting him cans of orange juice. Because back in those days, we'd give guys sometimes orange juice and honey. But there's no honey, but there's sugar, the coffee deal. So I'm putting sugar in this can, shaking it up, and giving it to him. And we're sitting there, and, and over a course of time, he starts to tell me about himself. And he starts to tell me about, uh, about the guilt and the remorse and the shame that he, he can't even really drink away anymore for the things he did to the people who loved him. And he talks to me, and he's talking to me more, and he says, you know, for some time I've wished I could kill myself. I just don't seem to have the courage. And then he really hooks me in. He says, he says, you know, I don't know why you're wasting time with me. 
You see, I'm not like you people in AA. I always drink again. And he's telling me about me. And somewhere in the wee hours of the morning, I fell in love with that guy. I, I don't know why. I mean, he can't do anything for me. He can't get me a better job. He's, the, he's probably not even going to stay sober a year and then give me some kind of credit for something. This guy can't do anything for me. Except that he suffered from alcoholism exactly like I had suffered from alcoholism, and I fell in love with him. I wanted him to find a way out of that trap probably more than I wanted it for me. And it was years later that I realized what had happened, something that absolutely had to happen for me. What I had fallen in love with is I fell in love with the me that is in him, a me that I could not, absolutely could not love directly. I tried. I had a therapist one time that was really big on loving yourself. You got to learn to love yourself first. And she gave me these positive affirmations. She told me to stand in front of the mirror and repeat six times six sayings. And I was supposed to stand there, look myself in the eye and say, God loves me. God forgives me. God accepts me. I love me. I forgive me. I accept me. And I'd be doing that. And there's a little voice in my head going, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> I could have stood there until the planet blew up and it wouldn't have changed how I felt about myself. I'm telling you, it wouldn't have. But somewhere in the process of making amends and helping others, I started to heal that inner relationship with myself, not by direct approach. There's nowhere in Alcoholics Anonymous where you make amends to yourself. Matter of fact, I, I run into guys all the time and say, you know, it comes to the amends, well, I'm not going to pay them back because it says in the book, except when to do so would injure them and other, or others, and aren't I another? I mean, no, you're not another. Another is other than you, idiot. You know, it's not, you're not another. God. I mean, but you know you think of it? Self-centered people are always looking for self-serving angles, you know? That's our, when it says in the book that selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of our troubles, they're not kidding. I've been able to stay around Alcoholics Anonymous through the steps and also by finally smashing a delusion that takes a lot of our old-timers out of here. Chapter 3, it says, The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, like maybe after 20 years of sobriety, the delusion that we're like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. What is it about guys like me that want to work like hell in AA and then become normal? I will never be normal. I will never be normal. And some of us don't want to accept that. And you, you can watch people edging their way out of AA by saying things like, well, it's time for me to get balance in my life. I mean, you're, you're putting the... You're, you're putting the balancing decisions in the hands of an idiot. I mean, you know, really, really, that's not good. In the beginning of chapter five, it says, or chapter three, it says, we're bodily and mentally different from our fellows. I am different and I will always be different. And thank God that I'm different. It is the greatest thing I have going for. I am mentally, I'm sober over 28 years and I'm, I'm mentally different. 
than normal people. And I, I employed about 25 normal people. I had one or two alcoholics in there. Then they, they stood out like neon, too. But I, I employed normal people. And we don't think like normal people. But there's a line in the book that I misinterpreted for years. It's on page 20, 22. And it's a funny line when you think about it. It says that when the alcoholic will stay away from drink as he will for months or years, it says he reacts. And this is exactly what it says. It re, he reacts much like other men. It doesn't say he becomes like other men. He reacts much like. A transvestite is much like a woman. <laughs> But he's not. And he's not. And we, what that means is on a good spiritual hair day, I can go out in the world and fit and nobody knows. Nobody knows. On a bad spiritual hair day, oh, everybody knows. Everybody knows. Father Martin said something one time. He said, you can, you can, you can find the sober alcoholics that aren't drinking with untreated alcoholism anywhere on the planet. He said, don't look, for, you won't, not from smelling alcohol in their breath. He says, look, look for the people at work in places that everybody else walks on eggshells around. Right? You catch me on a bad spiritual hair day when I am not trying diligently to carry out this decision in step three. And I'm back running the show again. And my life's all about me. And chances are there's going to be some people in my life walking on eggshells around me. Right, Because that's what untreated alcoholism is. It's that part of me that wants to play God. And it's still in me. And I, it's, it's the big tug of war that I, I struggle with in my own sobriety is from that part of me that wants to run the show to the, to the new, to the part that knows I need to surrender. And I need to. I need to surrender unconditionally. But it's a hard deal. I, uh, I used to go to my sponsor in early sobriety, and I, I don't, I don't I'm, it's not that I'm judgmental, but I do notice things about people. <laughs> and I would have, make these little lists of the things I've noticed, you know, the, the, the gallon AA that's just there for a hus- trying to get a husband, and the, the guy who's selling Amway in the parking lot, and the people that aren't putting any money in the basket, and they're drinking 10 cups of coffee, and... You know, and, and the guys at work that are stealing and the people that are lying in the meetings and the ones that are phony and sound like a Hallmark card and recovery bookstore and, you know, all that stuff. And my sponsor would always say the same thing. He'd say, you've got to quit playing God. I think, I'm not playing God. I'm reporting accurate information here. <laughs> I was playing God. I was climbed up on a throne of judgment and I'm... I'm finding fault with everybody in me. And I don't know. Isn't it funny when the ego is playing God and you, you're creating judgments about people? You don't even know you're doing it. You don't even know you're doing it. That's, it's not a judgment. That's just the way it is. I'll tell you two little stories and I'll shut her down. When I was new in sobriety, uh, there was a guy named Billy, Billy Taylor. and Billy was a great member of AA. He used to take guys like me out to coffee. And one night in a coffee shop, I'm new, fairly new, I started telling Billy about some, some of my secrets. You know, the stuff we all got. We all got something. The thing you're the most ashamed of, the thing you'd like to take to the grave. Everybody's stuff is different, but it all creates such a self-loathing in us. For some of you, maybe you got drunk and you beat your kids. Or maybe you left them somewhere. 
Or maybe you kicked your dog when it came up to lick your face because you couldn't stand anything that loved the person you hated the most, you. Or maybe you stole money from somebody and let somebody else take the blame. Or you ripped off something or did something to your parents that haunts you. Or your mate. Or maybe you cheated on your mate. Or maybe you had sex outside your species. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) We all got something. It's all something. And I'm telling Billy this my stuff, right? And he listened very patiently. And when I was done, he, he, didn't, he didn't reject me. I was afraid he would. He didn't. He said, well, you're not the only one that's ever done that, I'm sure. And maybe someday that experience will help someone else. And he went about his business. And a day or so, a couple days later, I guess, sometime that week, I got my shift changed. And all of a sudden, I'm working the swing shift to midnight every night. And I don't go to the same meetings. Now my whole meeting pattern's changed. And I went through a good part of a year. I didn't even see Billy. And then one night on my night off, I went to a meeting that I normally wouldn't go to, and Billy's there. And the meeting's about ready to start, and I see him across the room. I say, hey, Billy, how you doing? And he won't say hi to me. And he looks at me with this look of, like, contempt. This look of, like, uh, he t- couldn't look even look at me. turned away and went and sat down. And the meeting started, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm hurt because I, I know what's going on. He's been thinking about that stuff, and he's judging me for it. And I'll tell you, I can't blame him. God knows I've been judging myself for that stuff most. I always secretly believed that if you knew about me what I know about me, you'd feel about me the way I feel about me, and that's not going to be good. So I know he's judging me, and I, I'm sitting there, and I'm, now I'm getting angry. I'm starting getting a resentment because I'm thinking, that hypocrite. You know, he's all that AA party lying crap. He's been judging me. And then I sat there and I thought about it a little more. I had this epiphany experience. I thought to myself, oh my God, the reason he can't look me in the eye, he's been telling people that stuff. <laughs> and it, all of a sudden, it was like a curtain opened and I could see this so clearly. There was a girl that's friends with him. I had just asked her out. She would not go out with me. I knew he told her. There was another guy that they runs around with him. He'd been a little distant. And cold. I knew he'd talk. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, my head's going to blow up, and I'm going to kill him. And when the meeting's over, I am, I'm just going to go over, and I'm just going to tear into this guy. And the chairman of the meeting ends the meeting. and says, anybody have a burning desire? Billy raises his hand tells everybody in the room that the tumor they'd found, he got the results back and it was terminal and he has a very short time to live. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I felt about this big. And I realized that on the day he found out he was terminally ill and he was going to die, saying hi to Bob was not a big priority. That the day he found out he was under a death sentence that he was probably, as I would be, so far into his head, scared that he didn't even notice that I was there, that what I saw on his face was not judgment and contempt of me. It was fear for his own life. And I realized that Billy had never done anything to hurt me. He'd always just loved me. And it was like a postcard from God. Dear Bob, you don't know crap. Love God. Let me, let me tell you something. There's a line in the big book that says, the wrongdoings of others fancied or real had the power to actually kill. What would have become of me if I would have went and attacked the guy who did nothing but help me on the worst day of his life and then found out the truth? 
I'm telling you, I wouldn't have been able to come back here and save my life. I would have had to go out and drink myself to death. Absolutely. See, I believe, they, I misinterpreted something they tried to tell me as a kid in Catholic school about mortal sins. It's not that there's something I can do God won't forgive. The problem is there's something I can do that I can't forgive. And that I can, I can screw my life up so badly that I will never be able to face the grace because I can't get a sense of deserving it. And I would have died from that. would have been a mortal blow to my soul if I would have beat up the guy that helped me the most on the lowest day of his life. About 17, 18 years ago, I was up in this, not too far from here on the coast, at an AA event. It's that part of the Oregon coast near California where they have those big trees. I mean, big trees. I'd never seen anything like it. They, had, they, they got trees. Some of you guys, I'm sure you've been over. They got some trees down there that 25, 30 feet in diameter, 3, 4. I don't know how. They're just, they just go up to the sky. And I'm walking around. This guy's showing me around. I'm walking around this forest, and it is amazing. There's a presence in that forest. It's really amazing place. And then after a while, we get in this guy's truck, and we're, he's going to show me some other stuff. He's, I got the day where he's giving me the tour. And we're driving along, and we're passing these fields and these meadows. And he says to me, he says, you notice how you don't see one of those 300-foot trees all by itself out in the middle of the field? I said, yeah. He says, you know why that is? No. Why is that? He said, well, it is it's their nature in God's plan for them to aspire to grow to such magnificent heights that what happens is that they outgrow their roots capacity to support themselves and they literally will fall over and die as a result of their own aspired magnificence. He said what must happen in God's plan is that they must grow up in community. And they literally intertwine the roots into a net below the floor of the forest and literally feed and hold each other up. And that allows them to grow into their nature. And I thought to myself, my God, that's the story of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life. I have had an in a basic deep-seated defective character I cannot escape. And that is I've always yearned to take bigger bites out of life. I have always wanted more. I've always wanted more joy, more good feelings, more friends, more experience. I've always wanted more. And alone, it almost killed me. And I came to you and I got a sponsor. I worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I started sponsoring other people and I literally intertwined the foundation, the roots of my life with the roots of yours. And you've allowed me to grow into my nature. And if I live a thousand years, I can never repay you for my life. Thank you.